the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. One of the books that has changed my life is The Four Agreements, and I'm honored to have Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of that book, joining us today. Don Miguel's agreements are principles that are a powerful tool of conduct that can rapidly transform our lives and create love and happiness. Don Miguel is a renowned spiritual teacher and international best-selling author. Welcome, Don Miguel. It is such a pleasure to have you joining us today. Well, it's a, the pleasure is for me, really. I'm very excited to, to have this, uh, this talk with you. Well, thank you so much again for being here. Don Miguel, you write about four agreements that have the power to transform our life. And these agreements are be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. Why do you call these agreements and with whom are these agreements being made? Well, these agreements, uh, you made it with yourself because that way... Uh, what you are doing is is changing the way that you believe you are, because in certain point you will find out that you are not what you pretend to be all your life. And when you take these four agreements, it challenge all the agreements that you did to make you be uh, to live the life that you're that you're living right now. Then with these simple four agreements. They have the power to transform you, to change the way you create a story and the one you live. Because many people don't don't even know that they're living in a story, in a story that they create, their own creation. And that story is made by agreements. We agree with, uh, well, uh, with all the people, with the opinions that they have about us. When we agree with them, then... We accept those uh, those uh, those opinions, and we try to please everybody around us. We create an image of ourselves, and it's the one who's living our life, really. Because at a certain point, we kind of forget what we really are. We forget our authenticity, and we try to shift in every relationship that we have. It could be with friends, with the parents at school, uh, in, in the work, uh, with a husband, with children, with, uh, with friends. Everything is shifting, is changing, but we don't have uh, the awareness that all that is made by agreements. In fact, every single word that we use is just a result of an agreement because we give the meaning to every word, to every sentence. Because when we was born, we didn't have knowledge. We didn't know anything. Then we learn everything that we know. And the way that we learn is by agree with every song, with every word, with every attitude. We agree with the entire world who surround us. And we make it inside of our own mind. And this is where we live in this creation. Because we are the artists who create the dream or the story and the one we live. Once that we have that awareness, we find out that in that story, we populated with lots of uh, 
secondary character, but we only have one main character, which is what we believe we are. And we find out that the whole story is about you, the one who created. And depending the interaction that you have with everybody around you is how you're going to live your life. That's like when you're impeccable with the world. When you don't use the world against yourself, what you create is a great story. You create your own personal paradise, your own heaven. When you don't take anything personally, it's because you have the awareness that every single secondary character in your story is what you believe they are because you really don't know them. And then you understand that they create also a story and they live in their own story and you are only a secondary character in their story. Then when we have that awareness, how can we take anything personal when we know that there are only secondary characters in their story and they really don't know us? We only know what they believe about us. But if we use the truth, we find out that nobody really knows us and we don't know anybody else. Then when we don't take things personal, then that gives us immunity with the interaction that we have with everyone. Don Miguel, Mm -hmm. you started going through some of your agreements, and I'd like to just back up for a little bit and and go into Mm -hmm. each one in just a little bit more detail. You spoke about being impeccable with your word, and that is the first agreement. Why is this so important, and what does it mean to be impeccable? Well, the word impeccability means without sin, and it's nothing really religious, but a sin is everything that you do against yourself. And even when you talk about other people, those opinions will go back to you. Then you break a lot of relationships, you close many doors by talking against people, and you don't even notice that you are using it against yourself. Then when we are impeccable with the world, we create our own heaven. Otherwise, when we are not impeccable, we create all those dramas, all those conflicts, and we create our personal hell. Then if we want to live a great life, we really need to be impeccable with the world, especially when you use it with yourself. And not only the spoken word, our thoughts, those are words as well that can harm us, can't they? Yes, and this is uh, when I say don't make assumptions, because everything happens in your own mind, and you hear the voice of knowledge, because it's your knowledge who is speaking all the time in, in your head, and you are the one who's listening, and in reality, you are both. Then uh, when you listen to the voice of knowledge, you are making all those assumptions, that when the truth arises, you will find out that the majority of those assumptions, it was not true at all. When we refrain to make assumptions, we always ask for clarity. We want to understand what they really mean instead of making assumptions that this is what they mean. It's extremely important not to make assumptions because in that way, give you immunity with the interaction that you have with yourself, especially when we talk all those lies against ourselves. Like, they look at me, I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm ugly, I'm, you know, we, we gossip about ourselves, and we believe it, even if we, that we know that it's just life. The truth really set us free. So be impeccable mm-hmm. with your word. Then the next one you touched upon briefly, but it's don't take anything personally. And, and this one was written for me. I mean, I tend to take so <laughs> many things personally. Why do you believe so many of us do this? Why are we trapped in this personal importance? Well, because this is the way we learn. Like I said before, when we were born, we have no knowledge. In the interaction with our family at school, they download all that information into our mind. And we believe that. And what we see is that everybody takes everything personally. We learn to love the way they do. And the way they, they love is really not love, but the opposite of love, because it's conditional. And we learn to love with conditions. Mm. I love you if you let me control you. And that's the way we learn to love ourselves. I love myself if I'm good enough, if I'm not a loser, if I'm beautiful. I love myself if I become what I believe I should be. And that gives us so many false hopes. 
If we follow those hopes, if when we find reality, we don't like ourselves. If we don't like ourselves, we try to numb ourselves. And this is why we become addicted to suffering, to alcohol, to drugs, to overeating, etc., etc., because we don't like ourselves. And this is because we take it so personal. We really believe that we are what we believe we are. But it's absolutely not true. One of the most powerful things that I've ever read was what you wrote. Nothing other people do is because of you. Nothing other people do is because of you. If you can remember that, that is so powerful and freeing. And when you understand that, you get rid of all the guilt and all the shame. Because you make the assumption that they really know you, but they don't know you. They only know what they believe about you. If they only reflect in themselves. Like, like you say, nobody do anything because of you. But we believe that, we agree with that, and then we can live in shame, we can live in guilt. And this is so hard for us. Can you imagine living your life with shame and with guilt, when really people doesn't care, or hardly any, anybody care? Only care when that affects them. And, and so, Don Miguel, this leads us to the third agreement, which you spoke about briefly, don't make assumptions. And when we make assumptions, we misunderstand, we take it personally, we create drama. That's the cycle. And you've written that all the sadness and drama you have lived in your life was rooted in making assumptions and taking things personally. As I said, this is something that I'm guilty of doing. So you're talking about the importance of not making assumptions, but can you offer any strategies to help someone get started on that journey? Well, the strategy is, is easy. It is to be skeptical. Don't believe your life. Don't believe anybody else's life, but listen what they say. Don't believe your own life. You make all those assumptions that you're not good enough, that you're not intelligent enough, that you're not worth it, that nobody cares about you, that nobody loves you, etc., etc. Like, like I say a little before, they do all of that because they learn to love with conditions. And that's what we learn also. We love ourselves with conditions. Then with all those assumptions, we have to be in a certain way, or either we do it or we don't accept ourselves. If we feel shame of ourselves, we feel guilty, etc., etc. Then when we don't believe ourselves, we are skeptical about our own opinions, then uh, we free ourselves from all the guilt, from all that shame, because what we say really is not true. The truth is so simple. And that leads us really to the real love, which is, which is unconditional. Then that unconditional love is based on gratitude and generosity. This is what leads you to that unconditional love. When you love yourself without, with no conditions, you are so grateful from your own love, and just so generous that you're sharing it wherever you go. But then you rise in love when you take everything personally, when you make assumptions, when, when you are not impeccable with your work. It's because you are loving with conditions, and then you fall into that love. And that kind of love only hurts you because you feel the guilt, you feel the shame, etc., etc. It's a whole cycle. And that can reverse when you are quick. With, with generosity, and when you add with gratitude. So, Don Miguel, everything seems to go back and originate with loving yourself. If you love yourself, if you feel good about yourself, if you're impeccable with your words about yourself, that will then radiate out to others. Uh, yes, when, when you are impeccable with the world, you really love yourself just the way you are, mm-hmm. unconditionally. Just accept yourself, and that just because uh what you are but but because that really guides you into into joy into happiness into pleasure into the best things in your life and Don Miguel, your fourth agreement is always do your best, and that sounds like a no brainer, but how do we know if we're truly doing our best? How can that be measured? Well, you really don't know you just do it, and this is what makes the difference in your life, you know. We can have millions of ideas. Everything is in our mind. It can be so brilliant that if we don't take the action, 
we don't manifest those ideas. Then when we do our best, we are manifesting those ideas. And this is how we create all the civilizations that exist in the planet Earth. That's why the Egyptians, because what they were, Sumerians, the Greeks, the, the Romans, our society, you know, everything that is around you, what you're wearing, everything really exists first in the human mind, and with the action, we manifest it. We have the power to transform nature and to create, and what we create is amazing. You know, we create all those computers, we create planes, we create cars, you know, it's amazing everything that we create, and this is because we humans, we always do the best, but we are not aware of that. And when we have the awareness, and we don't procrastinate anymore, then we will see how our, our lives will change completely. When I say to the people, please help me to change the world, I'm not talking about humanity. I'm talking the world that we create in our own head, the world that only we can change. I only can change my own world. And if I want to change my world, I will not try to change everybody around me. I will not try to change the secondary characters. The only way to change my world is by change the main character, which is what I believe I am. When I change myself, just like magic, everything around me changed. And this is exactly what I'm doing right now with this program of the Agreement for Life, to help everybody to change the main character of their story, that they really can change their life. Because if you can imagine, if you change your own world, then very fast, the people around you will start changing. It will be a report that go the entire humanity. But you only have to work in yourself. You don't have to work in anybody else. You only need to change your own world, and nobody can do it but you. And this is exactly what they're doing right now. Don Miguel, you wrote, The best way to say thank you, God, is by letting go of the past and living in the present moment. Whatever life takes away from you, let it go. When you surrender and let go of the past, you allow yourself to be fully alive in the moment. Letting go of the past means you can enjoy the dream that is happening right now. I wrote a blog about letting go and surrendering, and I was amazed at how many people commented about having trouble doing just this. Are there any strategies that you can offer to teach us to learn how to let go and surrender? Well, we can say that when we learn to let go, we are surrendered to death. Because every moment that passes gone is death. But by letting go, what we really master is life. Because we no longer see the past. The past is just a point of reference. And we use it in order to take the actions today, to, to make the decisions that we make right now. And this is how we really master life by letting go of death. The death always exists, it's always there, and it's not necessarily leaving your physical body, which is also death, of course. But when you end a relationship, it's a way of death. When you end a business, when 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 you let uh, get out of the school, that let's say you leave high school. You never will see these people again anymore, at least not in that school. Then everything is, is in that way. If we keep the past in this moment, we never will live life. We live in the past. Then it's so important to let go and not to carry the past with us. The book is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. If you'd like to get more information, you can visit his website, MiguelRuiz.com. Don Miguel, it was such a pleasure having you on the show today. As I told you before the interview, I really felt like this book was written for me, and I have thoroughly enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you about the wisdom that you shared. So thank you so much again for being here with us. But you're very welcome and give all of my love to whoever is listening to you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. 
What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman, host of Conversations with Joan. I'm excited to announce that we're taking the show on the road, and the first stop is the New York Open Center. Join me on Sunday, July 21st at 10 a.m. when my guest is Colleen Kelly Alexander, author of Gratitude in Motion. Colleen was hit by a multi-ton freight truck and left for dead. She was revived twice and remained in a coma for over five weeks. She endured multiple surgeries and severe wound management as her broken body struggled to heal. Even though she could not walk at the time, Colleen vowed that she would run and and dedicate her race medals to the medical heroes that saved her life. To date, Colleen has run 50 races and completed 40 triathlons, including four half Ironman events. She is a true miracle. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash events. That's cyacyl.com slash events. And be sure to tune into Conversations with Joan every Sunday night at 10 p.m. right here on AM 970 The Answer. Dr. Lorraine Mita, a functional and integrative medicine physician who practices anti-aging medicine, executive health, hormone replacement therapy, and weight management. She's the author of Vibrance for Life, How to Live Younger and Healthier. Dr. Mehta is here today to discuss how to halt autoimmune disorders. Welcome, Dr. Mehta. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joan. Dr. Mehta, we hear so much about autoimmune disorders these days. Can you explain to us what they are and how common they are? Well, the National Institutes of Health estimates that over 23.5 million people suffer from autoimmune disorders, and the amount of autoimmune disorders are rising. It's more common in women than in men, and most people have a genetic predisposition to it. People must have heard of these disorders. The most common ones are Hashimoto's thyroiditis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, and even celiac. There are hundreds of these disorders. And if you have one, you're more likely to have another one. So I'm sure you and your listeners know somebody that's suffering from any one of these disorders, and they don't even know what to do about it. So doctor, you just said that most people have a genetic predisposition to these disorders. Does that mean that everyone who has this will develop it? Not necessarily. You know, your genes need to be turned on and they can also be turned off. So think of your genes as a loaded gun. It's not going to do any harm unless you pull the trigger. A triggering event for autoimmune disorders, if you happen to have the genetic predisposition, are things like infection and that are compounded by toxins and stress. Almost every one of my patients, if I search back to what happened before you develop this disorder, it's usually a major stressor or infection. See, it's the infection that pulls the trigger and turns the immune system on. And it's through a process called molecular mimicry. It's your immune system mistakes the infection or the toxin for your thyroid gland or your gut or whatever area the autoimmune disorder attacks. So the the part that it attacks will depend upon your genes and the type of infection or toxin. So, for example, people with celiac disease usually have a gene called the HLA-DQA1 and HLA-DQB1. So you can have the genes, but if you're not exposed to gluten or you don't develop an infection that triggers the, the autoimmune response, you may never get celiac disease. You need to activate the immune system. And the same is true of all the other autoimmune disorders. When the immune system gets activated in an inappropriate way, it causes the immune system to attack your body. And that inflammation damages the organs and the tissues. And it leads to the signs and symptoms of whichever disease it is. So, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, it would be your joints lupus, it could be your eyes, your kidneys, your skin. And there are certain bacteria that are associated with autoimmune disorders. For example, 
gingivitis, you know, common things of bleeding gums is associated with rheumatoid arthritis. And so is a common urinary tract infection from a disorder, a bacteria called proteus. Epstein-Barr is associated with rheumatoid arthritis, as well as many other autoimmune disorders like lupus, celiac, type 2 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and inflammatory bowel disease. So understanding that taking care of infections early on, managing your stress, and keeping the immune system in check is going to be critical for preventing or managing the autoimmune response. So doctor, what can a person do to avoid or manage autoimmune issues? What if we've already had an infection that we didn't know about? Can we undo whatever damage may have been done? I actually see a lot of people stabilize or reverse the some of the processes. You know, if you develop an autoimmune disease, you can never use the word cure. But it's something you will always have. You will always have that tendency. So that I have patients that have been managing for years. You can manage it. You can keep the immune response at bay. But you have to understand you're much more vulnerable if you get an infection or if you're under a lot of stress or you're exposed to toxin. Because, you know, studies show that about 30% of all autoimmune disease are genetic and the rest, 70% are due to environmental factors such as toxic chemicals, your diet, your gut microbiome, you know, whether you have good or bad bugs in your gut and different types of infections. So that, for example, if you know you have the gene for celiac disease, if you avoid gluten, you're not going to trigger the immune response. However, if you're sensitive to one food, you're often sensitive to another food. So food sensitivities are a really important factor because something like dairy is extremely similar in structure to wheat. So if you avoid wheat and you may be reacting to dairy and not avoiding dairy, you're kicking up the immune response. So what I usually recommend to my patients is doing an elimination diet. You eliminate the common food that cause sensitivities and then you reintroduce them to see if your symptoms change. Now there are better tests. What people don't realize is they say, oh, I've been tested for gluten, but it only tests two antibodies. Well, you know, wheat and gluten has probably 27. So there are new tests that go deeper and test more, and we do that in our office. Um, toxins are another thing that can cause what, what we described before as molecular mimicry. It looks like your tissues. It looks like the infection. These toxins can trigger the immune response. Just think about it. You know, when we put on lotions and hairsprays and uh, you know, nail polish and clean our house, we're exposed to over 200 chemicals per day. And even our furniture, our clothes, our carpeting, outgasses different types of chemicals. So you can never really get away from it, but you can decrease the toxic burden. And then the last but not least is managing your stress because stress predisposes you to infections that trigger and perpetuate this immune response. So managing stress, deep breathing, prayer, meditation, getting quieting your mind, reframing is very, very important to managing the immune response. And there's so much more that can be offered to people who already have an autoimmune disorder and don't want it to progress. You know, as a functional medicine doctor, there's so much more that you can offer people to manage the immune response because many of my patients live very happy, healthy, carefree lives, and they don't need to rely on medication because they're willing to change their habits and manage the disorder. And you know, doctor, if you think about it, having some control over approximately 70% gives us a lot of power. And could you just remind our listeners, what are those foods that you usually recommend we eliminate? Just for two weeks, I have people eliminate alcohol, artificial sweeteners, caffeine, corn, dairy, eggs, peanuts, sugar, soy, wheat, and anything with gluten. And usually it takes about two weeks before you start, a week you start feeling better. And when you add the foods back in after two weeks, if you experience a symptom, and there's a symptom questionnaire I give my patients, that means your immune response has been kicked up, and that's a food to avoid. And sometimes you can heal from it, but this is something that should be monitored and addressed. 
Dr. Mita, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this information. As you said, having some control over about 70% of whether or not these autoimmune disorders occur gives us a lot of power. So like you said, making some lifestyle changes can make a big difference in how we live our life. So if you would like to get more information about Dr. Maida and her work, you can visit her website, howtoliveyounger.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Maida, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lorraine. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Joining me is Maggie Callanan, a hospice nurse who has spent her professional career caring for the terminally ill. She is the co-author of the book, Final Gifts, Understanding the Special Awareness Needs and Communications of the Dying. And she's the author of Final Journeys, A Practical Guide for Bringing Care and Comfort at the End of Life. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Maggie, I'm so happy that you're here today because your book, Final Gifts, was given to me right after my father had lost his battle with lung cancer. And during the time that I was caring for him, I experienced a lot of what you write about in your book and things that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. One of the things that struck me was that right before my father passed away, actually the day before, he came home from the hospital and as they were taking him out of the ambulance, he looked at me and he said, I came home to die. And rather than address his feelings, I kicked into the person that was trying to cheer him up. And I said, you know, no, dad, we're going to fight this and you have plenty of time. And that was what I said to him. And after reading your book, I realized that I could have handled that situation differently. After reading your book, I learned the importance of giving our loved ones permission to go. And I was then able to do that when my mother was dying. I know my mom was holding on because the months prior to that, she kept talking about wanting to go home when she was home. And I knew what she meant. And because I read your book, I was able to sit with her and tell her that I would be okay and that I was strong and that it was okay if she wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. And I told her to do what you want to do, what you need to do, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And she passed away two days later. And so I thank you for that because that wisdom was given to me by reading your book, Final Gifts. And I was then able to allow my mother to go in peace. Well, thank you. I appreciate that comment. That came to to us from our patients. The whole field of death and dying was uh, pretty much uncharted territory, believe it or not. We only discovered the truth about death and dying in the 1970s when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote her books on death and dying. You know, prior to that, it was the failure of a medical process. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she opened the doors for the other layers of the journey, not just the physical. And of course, to most people and to families, the emotional, spiritual, psychological layers of the journey are far more important than what's happening to your blood pressure. And you talk about near-death awareness. What Mm -hmm. does that actually mean? Uh, My co-author, Pat Kelly, and I started noticing patterns in the language and behavior of our dying patients that seemed to intensify as they got closer, nearer and nearer to death. Uh, Both of us were familiar with the term near-death experience, which I think is fairly well known now by most people, and that's the when you have a heart attack, drowning, auto accident, a very rapid, dramatic experience of seeing the light, being out of your body, feeling free of pain, uh, having reunions with people. There's many, many components of the NDE, and I am a former critical care nurse, so I was involved in many, many resuscitations and saw this play out in front of me, but couldn't get my medical staff to acknowledge this. We were sort of closing our eyes to it. Uh, Then I start working for hospice, work with Pat Kelly, and we started noticing unique patterns in the language and the behavior of our dying patients that felt similar but were very profoundly different. Maggie, were there any commonalities among these patients? Were all of them heavily sedated? Did all of them have the same disease? And I'm glad you asked that because I can't tell you, we lost a few years before we ever published because we asked all those same questions. Were they all on morphine? Did they all have disease that had spread to their brains or their livers or their kidneys? Was it because of the medications? Was it because they weren't getting enough oxygen to their brain? What was going on with the chemistry? 
chemistry in their blood that may have caused confusion. And we could not find a commonality. It was happening more profoundly even with children who, of course, are not acculturated to be afraid. Uh, So they were regaling us with phenomenal stories of the angels and the castles in the sky and the beautiful butterflies that they were seeing. It seems to happen more easily again to to the real elderly who may have grown up in a farm and grandma died by the stove in the kitchen because it was the heat source. And they heard her calling her dead husband. And they saw her reaching and waving for things unseen. So that generation is far more comfortable with it. Once we opened hospitals and we sterilized death and dying and put bed rails up between the dying and their loved ones uh, and had visiting hours and no children allowed and no pets allowed, Uh, We sanitized death and dying and made it into a strange process again. Once upon a time, it was not. Maggie, you say that when when someone we love is dying, you know, usually we don't know what to do or say. And you believe that if we listen and if we know what to look for, the dying often provide the answers for us. You say that communication usually falls into two categories. Yes. When we catalog the stories, there were two main categories. First category of messages, our dying patients are actually telling us what it feels like to die. And once again, it has nothing to do with blood pressure or pulse or, you know, liver functions. Uh, You know, they're talking about uh, being in the presence of someone who is not alive, someone that we can't see, typically a spouse or a loved one that has predeceased us. Sometimes it's a spiritual being. They talk about uh, going someplace. As you said with your mother, she was going home. That's very common. I, I heard it in the hospital all the time, and it made sense to me. But now suddenly I'm in people's homes, and they're telling me they want to go home. Then you really have to say, what home are we talking about here? They told us that they could see a wonderful place, a place that was very appealing to them, a place that they wanted to go, many lifestyle parallels there. And the thing that was so surprising, I mean, all of this was surprising to us, but they showed us that they actually knew when they were going to die, and that's even if the doctors and nurses didn't. So, for example, a nurse would go around and say goodbye to her patients because she was going on a two-week vacation, and one patient would say, I won't be here when you come back. And no matter how healthy that patient was, we caution families and nurses to listen very carefully because often they have a knowledge of when their death will occur that we don't have. So that's that's all wonderful news. We don't die alone. We're preparing for this journey. It doesn't come up and catch us off guard. We see a beautiful place that we're going and we know when it's going to happen. That takes away the passive terrified aspect that most people feel dying is. The second category is that the, that the dying person is making requests of us to finish unfinished business so that they can be free to go on, much like you're giving permission to your mother. But in this category, choosing the time of death, and I think many of your audience can remember when grandma waited for the grandson to come from California, uh, for the baby to be born. Uh, anniversaries are very important. Important. The first six years I worked for hospice, we never had a death on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, those poor little folks were struggling to stay alive so they wouldn't ruin the holiday for their families. But the day after Christmas, it was awful. <laughs> you know, it was like everybody was dying because they made the deadline. Um, so there is an ability to choose the moment, not to stop the process. But a very important component of this is that people don't realize that the dying people sometimes choose the moment when the people they care about the most are not present. I, I hear that a, all the time. Someone it will is say, a gift we, yeah, we, we've held a vigil 24 hours a day for three weeks, and the one minute I went down for a cup of coffee. See? See? That happens all the time. And this was with your mother? Um, actually, yes. We were with my mother all day. Okay. We left well, and, and about 8 o'clock at night, yeah, and she died 12.30 in the morning. The final gift of mothering that your mother gave you was to spare you seeing her leave. You were talking about the communication and and, and a lot of the commonalities that Mm -hmm. you've seen Mm -hmm. with people going through the natural death process. Mm -hmm. When we see our loved ones and they're calling out to people or they're reaching out, and Mm -hmm. a lot of times I think we tend to just chalk that up to them being incoherent or being drugged. When we do that, are we missing something? Yes, we absolutely are. I would like your audience, if they take one thing away from this show, to take away the fact that when we think someone is confused in the dying process, we are the ones who are confused. How do people that are dying reveal their feelings? What are things that we can look for? Well, sometimes they'll say things like, I had a dream, but it really wasn't a dream, because these experiences are extremely real to our dying people. And they, on some level, understand that it's odd, 
uh, that they sort of have a foot in two worlds. The way I like to describe it, and I'm really dating myself now, do you remember the old Brownie Hawkeye cameras where if you didn't advance the film, you got two pictures on one negative? Sadly, I do. <laughs> okay, yes, <laughs> with the great big flashbulb thing. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we may have lost a good percentage of your audience with that image, but two images on one film, on one picture, I think is what the experience is like. I mean, I have sat for hours and hours and hours and hours and watched this so that I could help people understand it. And I think it's like two images on one negative, a foot in two worlds. Some of what they're saying belongs to this world. Some of what they're saying belongs to the world that we cannot see. And we're so busy diagnosing and fixing that we're sometimes fixing things that don't need to be fixed. So my message is don't be too quick to medicate or label someone confused because then you ignore them. You don't listen to what they're saying. They can't be saying anything important. You know, doctors and nurses have fancy labels, anoxia and metabolic imbalance and blah, blah, blah. Families say things like, she's out of it now. You know, Aunt Tilly's lost her buttons. We can put Uncle Willie in the nursing home. He doesn't know who he is anymore. That's the family's brand of labels. But the one thing that's missing is that no one's listening to the words. Buried in the words are just some lovely, lovely messages that will give us peace in our own grieving. It will also change the way we view our own dying. Maggie, that's why I love the title of your book, Final Gifts, because I know when I was going through the process with my father, Mm -hmm. my parish priest, I had gone to him for counsel, and and he had said to me that even though it's one of the most horrific times that I'm going through in my life, Mm -hmm. there are precious gifts that can be found if we take the time to look for them. Exactly. You know, looking back, taking my dad for chemo and Mm -hmm. radiation and and watching it, I don't think I would have traded a a moment of that because... I got to see my father for a human being, and Mm -hmm. I got to see his emotions Mm -hmm. that I never experienced before. And I looked at him in a different way, and had I not gone through that with him... You wouldn't have. Right. I wouldn't have seen him for the man that he was. You know, I hear wonderful comments from families who are granted, exhausted, dragged out. Nobody wants this to happen. But I've heard people say it's the hardest job I ever loved. Exactly. And that is so true. Because it's it's the final opportunity for treasured moments. You know, it's what I say to my families. We're going to stop worrying about what this cancer is doing, and we're going to start focusing on making memories. Maggie, I hate to say this, but we are out of time. No. And there is so much that I want to talk about. I always have so much more to say. That's okay, because we're going to have you back to say it, because this is very important. I'd like that. If you'd like more information about Maggie and her book, Final Gifts, you can visit her website, MaggieCallanan.com. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you been a pleasure for me. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll be right back. How much hydration is necessary for us to be perfectly healthy? And how does being pregnant affect our intake? I'm Dr. Michael Magwood, chiropractor specializing in prenatal and pediatric chiropractic care. The question is, why is water so important during pregnancy? First, dehydration affects a mom's hormones, so we want water to help create balance. Second, circulation, which is improved by hydration, can support egg health. My first tip, then, is consume 16 ounces of water first thing in the morning. And secondly, realize the value of your hydration that you're getting from your foods. Specialty foods like chia and cacti produce something in our body called gel water, which can be transmitted through our connective tissue. My final suggestion is to drink alkalized water. Studies have shown that water consumed at a pH of 8.5 is the most alkalizing source of water for the body. For answers to more of your questions about water, hydration, and hydration during pregnancy, feel free to reach out to our offices in Clifton, New Jersey, and in New York City at purebalancecenter.com. Do you get a knot in the pit of your stomach or feel panicked when you think of flying? If you do, then hypnosis can help with that. Hi, I'm Mary Battaglia, and I'm a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner in Oradell, New Jersey. Some people want to travel and visit people, but the fear of flying prevents them. They agonize over getting ready for the trip and become stressed and feel anxiety as the day approaches. There are many reasons for fear of flying that can include an event that happened on a plane, turbulence, leaving a safe and secure home, feeling claustrophobic, or a lack of control on the airplane. Whatever the reason, the fear can paralyze you and stop you from traveling on a plane. 
A trauma reversal and hypnosis can help remove the emotion of the event so you can be free to fly again. Sometimes you don't even know what created the fear, and we find that out in hypnosis and work to remove it. I also create a custom recording for you to listen to on the plane so you have a calm, relaxing ride and stay in control of you and enjoy the trip. I'm Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner, and you can find out more information at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss why mothers are role models every day. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. It's always good to be with you. So, Amy, as mothers, we have a lot going on every day. So it's easy to forget that one of our main roles is modeling behavior for our children. But you're here to remind us of that, aren't you? Yes, exactly, Joan. Because you know what? As a mom, we can all relate to being pulled in so many different directions. So we're constantly picking up children or dropping them off or doing laundry or making our homes organized or working outside of our homes. And in the rush of all of that, we come down to the fact that our children are watching our every move. They're listening to us. They're picking up on our habits. They're watching us. So whether we were ready or not, when we became mothers, we also became role models. Amy, what's one key lesson that you believe is important for us to pass on to our children every day? You know, Joan, I think in the world today, there's this, well, let's face it, back in our Founding Father's Day, there was the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And there's still this idea of pursuing happiness. And um, I had a woman sign up for my class because she wanted to know how come I was always so happy. And I think we have to get beyond this idea of happiness and as mothers we need to explain to our children and more importantly role model for our children a strong sense of contentment and that contentment comes from within it's not a smugness it's not a arrogance it's a it's a yearning to look to be better and it's a it's a yearning to be more peaceful while appreciating what we have, focusing on what we have versus, you know, always pursuing something like happiness. How do you recommend we do this? Well, I know that sounds like a mouthful, right? I (laughs) I recommend that we do this um, simply by, you know, sometimes I've had to remind my children that happiness is a mood. And we go through a variety of moods in one day. Sometimes we can be frustrated with something at school or work. Sometimes we can be excited, happy, overjoyed. But at our baseline, we want to be content. And that comes from practicing gratitude with our children. So an easy way to do that is to focus on what you're grateful for. Take a couple minutes each day and just speak about what you're grateful for. Amy, how do you think we're going about pursuing this? Well, I think social media is encouraging everybody to be externally happy and show themselves in these festive situations and in these happy moments in life. And so therefore, I think as mothers, we need to come back to the fact that, yes, we are role models. And what do we want for our children? And There is also a movement in our world today, and I'm sure, Joan, with your guests, you've been aware of this, but there's this movement for internal contentment and internal reflection 
and mindfulness. And so as mothers and leaders of our families, we need to come back and say, that's what we want for our children. So we need to monitor social media and we need to have them disconnect and come back and spend time just with the family or just on their own with friends, swimming in a pool, no phones and everything, but just to, just to focus on the moment. That's what's really important um, because when we're content in the moment and we live moment by moment, we string all of this moments of contentment together. Do you think that we're doing a good job? I think we need to do more, Joan. And that's why I'm calling out to women to remind them that we're role models and we're leaders. So it's not okay for us as parents to say, oh, well, it's just the culture. They're always on their phones. Or, oh, this is just social media. This is the day and age they're growing up in. No. What my challenge is for each and every one of us is to say, this may be the culture, but we're the role model. And we need to take time to, yes, we need to discover that on our own and pull back and do things like self-care and reflection and gratitude and meditation. But we also need to let our children and confirm that our children are witnessing us do that. And we do need to do more. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, or if you would like to get a copy of her new book, Infant Inspiration, you can visit her website, amymcollins.com. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.